at one point, this must have been about 1966 or 7, to uh, give the principal address at the annual gathering of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And I did. At the time, it seemed, well, yeah, why not? <laughs> in retrospect, it seems like one of the most important things I ever did in my life. Before we delve into this dialogue on theology, economy, history, morality, and perhaps most importantly, community, I would like to thank the following groups for making this podcast series possible. Thank you to the Virginia Tech Honors College for graciously sponsoring with their Enrichment Scholarship Program, their ever-growing support for independent student projects, such as this podcast you're about to hear, truly embodies what it means to be part of an honors scholar community. Discover where challenge meets expectation and opportunity at honorscollege.vt.edu. Thank you also to Virginia Tech's Policy Strategic Growth Area Group, who work to provide an opportunity for faculty from diverse disciplines to come together to share their interests and make new connections related to policy. To learn more, check out their work on VTechWorks Destination Area homepage under the Strategic Growth Areas tab. Welcome back to Building the Beloved, a Jane's Theory podcast dedicated to the continuation of Martin Luther King's Beloved Community vision. Beloved community refers to a way of life that is based on pure, unconditional love for humankind. In the first episode of the series, I traveled to Houston, Texas to interview Dr. Virgil Wood, a tenure associate of the late Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., on the origins of the beloved community concept. On today's episode, I sit down with former Hollis research professor at the Harvard Divinity School and former fellow advocate of Martin Luther King's, Dr. Harvey Cox. (laughs) Well, my name is Harvey Cox. I have just finished uh, teaching for 41 years at Harvard. I've taught in both Harvard College and in Harvard Divinity School. Uh, in the field of uh, religion, world religions, uh, religious ethics. The the book that I was uh, first known for was a book called The Secular City, as you may recall. Uh, And uh, I've been interested in cities my my whole life uh, and have um, thought about them and written about them and so on, Uh, and especially the kind of uh, interaction of groups in, in, in cities. I sat down with Dr. Cox in his home in Cambridge, Massachusetts on Valentine's Day, 2019. Yeah, I grew up in a, a small town in Pennsylvania called Malvern, mm-hmm. M-A-L-V-E-R-N. It's um, about 25 miles west of uh, Philadelphia. So I grew up in Malvern, um, family of four kids. My father was a small businessman. I, um, I went to Penn where, where in, in, in Philadelphia, and then I did a, uh, my Master's of Divinity when I decided to go into the um, ministry at uh, Yale Divinity School, and after a couple of years in the ministry, mainly college chaplaincies, one of the first things I did when I got out of Divinity School was I became the uh, uh, chaplain at Oberlin College in Ohio. This was the same year that uh, Martin Luther King was leading the Montgomery bus boycott. 
And I got very interested in that. I've been, I was interested in the in racial justice as a as a kid growing up in this town. I grew up with uh, uh, with black kids, black and white together, and uh, I was always interested in that. Yeah, and so I met King during that time, during the Montgomery bus boycott, and um, we discovered right away that was 1956. Uh, is that right? Yeah, 56. Uh, that uh, we had a lot in common. We were born the same year, uh, both Baptist ministers. He was interested in the theology of uh, uh, Paul Tillich, great Protestant theologian, and so was I. We, we, had, we were both uh, sort of on the same wavelength. So we sort of got to know each other. And, and from then on, I kept in touch with him and he with me. And eventually, I started working with him in the organization that he founded and headed called the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Mm -hmm. Now, my entree, I had moved back here by that, by that time. My entree into the Southern Christian Leadership Conference was King, but it was also Virgil Wood. Virgil, when he came here to be a pastor down in, in Roxbury, was already uh, on the uh, sort of uh, guiding Council of the, of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and he invited me to come along to some of those meetings, which were very key meetings. I was one of the few white people that was there, and a couple others, and so I got to see how that the organization operated from from the inside. I was there while they were making some very important decisions about the next campaign, Selma or Birmingham or St. Augustine. Then King asked me at one point, this must have been about 1966 or 7, mm -hmm. to uh, give the principal address at the annual gathering of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And I did. Uh, I talked, I, I, I uh, gave that address. At the time, it seemed, well, yeah, why not? Sure, I can give that address. In retrospect, it seems like one of the most important things I ever did in my life. Yeah. Uh, I didn't know, and most people didn't know at the time, I think, although we, we saw the enormous leadership qualities and generosity and uh, vision of Martin Luther King, but we didn't, we, you know, any holiday or anything like that, and we didn't, we didn't know how central to the whole um, movement of American history we were. So, um, I did that, and, uh, and then continued to be in touch with him uh, until he was killed in '68. There was a big discussion uh, about the uh, march on March on Washington, which was 1964 or five, I forget, four, I guess. And uh, uh, most of King's inner circle said, yeah, let's go um, along with the other groups, NAACP and the others, uh, to Washington and really fill up Washington <clears throat> with people from all over the country, black and white, and really demand jobs and freedom. Jobs and freedom was the idea. And uh, other people, the, the sort of a minority, including Virgil, uh, in, the, uh, in, in King's inner circle, said, why, why go to Washington? It looks like we're asking for a kind of a handout. Let's go to Wall Street. That's where the real economic power is. Mm -hmm. And let's uh, march on Wall Street. People said, eh, I don't want to march on Wall Street. So they didn't do it. Uh, and I asked Virgil once, a, few, uh, a couple months ago, 
in retrospect, do you think you were right? And he said, yeah. Since then, there has been this thing called Occupy Wall Street. And so I asked Virgil, I said, what did you think about the Occupy Wall Street movement? He said, there was only one thing wrong with the Occupy Wall Street movement. They didn't occupy Wall Street. <laughs> they camped out in this park, you know, in the, in the middle of the financial district. They didn't disrupt anything. And I said, if, if Dr. King had been leading that, there would have been some nonviolent uh, disruption. People would have been lying down on the steps of some of those places or, uh, uh, and, um, you know, in general, making a, making a much more uh, visible and... Like, um, eloquent statement, uh, but at least it, it would have been uh, in a uh, in a sector of the society where there was real power and money, and they didn't do that. They, they it was symbol. It was so symbolic. Now, you know, King was not against symbolic movements, but you know, when you when you're uh, marching in Birmingham or Selma or something, you're 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 exposing yourself to real power, and, and you get get hurt, get beat up mm-hmm. sometimes. Um, um, when I, in my own work with King, I found myself in two different jails <laughs> due to his leadership. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I value that experience. I didn't at the time, I'll mm-hmm. tell you. I didn't, didn't like being in a jail at all. <laughs> yeah. uh, but still, it was, it was something that does, I think for anyone, permanently change your perspective on things. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you're um, in a jail and you know that you are not going to get out of there until someone else puts the key in the lock and turns the key. There you are. And you're, you're seeing what it looks like uh, from the uh, underside, so mm-hmm. to speak. And most of, most people don't ever get that. Uh, most people who are not on the underside mm-hmm. don't often get that uh, uh, perspective. When did you first hear the term beloved community? When well, I think it was from King himself. Yeah, I, I traveled around with him a lot, and he would uh, he uh, he gave a lot of you know just lots and lots and lots of talks. And when you told me you wanted to talk about this, I tried to remember when the first time was, and I don't remember when the first time was, mm-hmm. but I know that it was a uh, very important idea for him, the beloved community. Now, so let me say a little bit about what I think it meant to King. Sure. Uh, I was thinking about this just yesterday because I I, uh, I was out with a friend. We went out to uh, Walden Pond. You know about Walden and Thoreau and right. that old business. It's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful place just mm-hmm. west of here. And um, uh, Thoreau had a sense of freedom as well. He wrote about freedom. But for him, freedom was to keep from getting involved in a community. Go out and live in the woods. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cook your own meal. His mother used to bring out meals for him. He, that's not very well known, but yeah. live out, live, among, live in nature, sever your dependency mm-hmm. on uh, uh, various forms of community and, and so on. There's that whole tradition in American life that uh, freedom means my individual freedom mm-hmm. as distinct from a community mm-hmm. which can be uh, suffocating mm-hmm. or oppressive or just bothersome or whatever. Uh, now, the other tradition in American society is the one represented by King, which is the richest uh, form of human life is, is life lived within a community, a community which is um, informed by uh, love. 
The aftermath of nonviolence is the creation of the beloved community. The aftermath of nonviolence is redemption. The aftermath of nonviolence is reconciliation. The aftermath of violence, however, is bitterness. This is the thing I'm concerned about. Let us fight passionately and unrelentingly for the goals of justice. Let's be sure that our hands are clean and let us never fight with falsehood and violence and hate and malice, but always fight with love so that when the day comes and the walls of segregation are completely crumbled in Montgomery, we will be able to live with people as their brothers and sisters. How do you think that the beloved community, because it's kind of, it, in itself, it's a very broad concept, and I think a lot of people there's a lot of people who would critique it by saying it's too idealistic. Is there kind of, is there an experience that you've had in your life that was kind of a, a tangible experience where you felt you were participating in a beloved community? It's kind of a big question. <laughs> well, you know, uh, 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 Dr. King, uh, for him, it was a more contemporary and understandable term rather than kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. Even though his own name was King, he <laughs> the kingdom was like, so we don't have kingdoms anymore. What are they? <laughs> but we do have this yearning for community that everybody has somewhere inside them. They, 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 uh, even if they try to repress it, they try to get rid of it or something, we have this yearning for community. And um, um, very, very little meets it. I think I have been part of that for a while. Uh, off and on in my life, certainly I belong to a community here, um, my own church, which is a, a old Cambridge. It's called Old Cambridge Baptist Church. is a, for me, is a model of a beloved community. People take care of each other, and um, we are quite actively involved in, in, in community efforts and political and social cause things and all that. Uh, and um, um, I think, like the kingdom of God. I'll get kind of theological here. Yeah, yeah. You get little tastes. Mm-hmm. You don't find yourself actually living in uh, the beloved community in, in its fullness. Mm-hmm. Um, you, but you get a, a, um, a glimpse, a taste, a foretaste of mm-hmm. it uh, here and there in different family experiences. Um, this, this little neighborhood here has some qualities of that. Um, uh, and others, uh, so it's it's you know that, that's what um, go back to Jesus talking about the kingdom of God. He said, "Look, um, you don't say here it is or there it is. It's a, it's in the midst of you. Mm-hmm. The kingdom of God's in the midst, but it's just it's not fulfilled yet. You see little bits of it, a glimpse of it here and there, and it hasn't yet been fulfilled. So that's kind of my theology. We're on the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, we hope, and King thought so." You know, his whole statement about the arc of history, which bends toward justice and all that. I hope he's right. <laughs> I have some doubts in the last couple of years. But, um, it's, uh, uh, if, you, if you can taste or have a foretaste of it, it does empower you and motivate you. And I think working in the and uh, with with King was one of the great experiences of my life, of course. And I saw or thought I felt a little of that 
working with him. People who know about Beloved Community, they see it as something that was developed in the Christian religion, and it's kind of a Christian idea. One of the things I'm trying to do with this podcast series is expand the Beloved Community to something that is inclusive and yeah. that is approachable. So what, what do you think you would say to someone who would not be interested in even considering the beloved community when they find out that it's a it's a Christian rooted idea. What what do you think you would say to someone who would feel that way? <laughs> well, uh, how would you make it more inclusive? I guess, and in, in terms of yeah, or make people no, feel that's a very more good more. question mm-hmm. because there's no doubt that uh, it does have some roots. Mm-hmm. Uh, the word community and the word communion, of mm-hmm. course, are. are are related to each other, sharing a communion. And uh, I once heard King talking about um, uh, communion. He didn't do it very often because he was really not a high church guy. <laughs> but he said, look, uh, it's, it's, it, we can go back just a step. Think about the, the Christian idea of uh, communion, which starts with uh, Jesus and his, just before he dies mm-hmm. with his uh, disciples. And the um, thing to notice that the uh, material or the elements that are used are very ordinary. They just happen to be on the table there. There's the bread, there's the wine. You know, you don't have to conjure something down from heaven. You know, it's not uh, nectar and ambrosia. It's the ordinary stuff of life. (laughs) But it's the stuff of life which is uh, uh, broken. And broken and poured out, I think, it's, you don't get to uh, communion without a certain amount of um, pain and uh, being broken or being willing to be broken. Um, but then uh, the other thing to notice about it is that uh, at its best, when you serve communion, bread and wine, everybody is invited. You don't just have the rich or the poor, the black or the white, Everybody's equal, uh, you might say, at the altar rail mm-hmm. um, or at the pew, however you take it. It's, it's an equalizing um, uh, enterprise. You get just as much as the next person, and they get just as much as you, and it's, it's, uh, it's distributive justice, if you would. It's a model of distributive justice. Uh, so if you take this uh, idea of distributive justice and uh, say, look, that, that's a, um, an important idea. And it isn't only Christian, although it, it, it has a particular kind of Christian uh, what, um, rootage because we live in a society which, which was influenced to some extent, a large extent, I guess, by, by Christianity. But uh, analogs can be found in almost all, in almost all religions. Mm-hmm. And I've... Um, I've been at Hindu services where they pass around the, uh, um, uh, what do they call it there? I forget it is, a particular kind of uh, bread, or Buddhist services or others. And um, the uh, it's so universal in a way because it, what it does is to symbolically respond uh, to this inner need or yearning uh, we all have for a, 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 a equalitarian and acceptive, loving, quote unquote, community. 
uh, and it's it's not it's not the reality it's not the full reality it's a kind of a token mm-hmm. uh, of uh, what we're hoping for striving for um, so I don't think the fact that it has some uh, echo of a, a Christian sacrament should make it um, uh, unwelcome people on its own merits because it has a, a enormous power I think widely known for his work on racial justice, he also had a strong passion for economic equality in the years prior to his death. In November 1967, Martin Luther King and the staff of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference met and decided to launch a Poor People's Campaign to highlight and find solutions to many of the problems facing the country's poor, such as employment and housing crises. This campaign would later lead up to a Poor People's March on the country's capital. Here is Cox on the topic of economic justice. How did his Poor People's campaign, how did that kind of start to blend together with Beloved Community? Uh-huh. Yeah, well, no, that's a very important uh, aspect of King. When, when King looked around <laughs> as a, a young black preacher, and even before that, he saw that the major, the major break, the major chasm in community in America was the racial divide, mm-hmm. uh, the um, color line, as they used to say. And therefore, um, he started really mainly concerned to abolish the, at least the legal framework for the uh, that form of separation from community. So the opposite would, uh, would be desegregation, integration, had mainly uh, racial uh, overtones. As he developed uh, during the 60s, well, the middle 60s, and especially the the latter part of the 60s, he began to see that uh, the major rift in society, although color line was one of them, was the the chasm between the haves and the have-nots. The people with so much that they don't know what to do with it, and people who don't have enough to get along from day to day. It was, uh, in a sense, uh, an economic uh, division. So he moved from, um, uh, in the last couple of years of his life, uh, he was really, really um, insistent that any movement that he would have anything to do with had to be racially inclusive. Mm. And it had to include, include uh, uh, well, especially poor people, but from all the different ethnic uh, groups in America, um, Hispanic, black, poor whites, Native Americans, all the others. And therefore, the uh, uh, Poor People's Campaign was really the culmination of that, of that vision, uh, for which he took some criticism, by the way, mm-hmm. from the uh, old civil rights uh, establishment, which said, no, 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 we, we really have to keep at this black-white division. He said, well, that's very important, but uh, look, underlying that, he said, suppose you fi- we can finally get into these uh, drugstores where they wouldn't serve us. Uh, what if we don't have the money to buy a hamburger? You've right. ever heard that story before. Yeah. Uh, what's the point? Um, and uh, now Virgil uh, 
all along, from the time I first met him, and when he was working with King, saw this economic dislocation and uh, uh, division as, uh, uh, if anything, more basic than the racial division. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was, he was, he was a, a, unfortunately, early on, a kind of a voice. There were a couple other people who agreed with him around, around King, but uh, he, was, he really uh, believed that and worked at it and uh, still does. I mean, that's still one of his major uh, uh, focuses. Uh, now, the, I, one important thing to notice, very important thing, is that during those years we had uh, Malcolm X until 1965, until he was killed, Martin Luther King until 68, and uh, uh, Malcolm started out with an a, a enormously exclusive emphasis on race. Uh, and uh, he wanted to bring together black people in this country and really uh, challenge the white establishment and uh, by any means necessary, as he used to say, and, and so on. Uh, but he moved also toward seeing uh, the economic division as even more important. He broke with the black Muslims at one point and formed his own organization, which was racially uh, inclusive, uh, and was based on the, the quest for you know, economic justice and redistribution. So he was moving that way, just as King was. Mm. So in the last two years, they were coming very, very close, very close together, mm-hmm. which a lot of people don't, still don't understand, mm. uh, that uh, they were getting pretty much on the same page, although the difference was that uh, Malcolm thought that using uh, non well, using electoral means and, and uh, uh, political uh, channels and so on would be effective. Early on, he said, no, no, don't do that. Uh, uh, but he, he uh, never quite said openly, um, he never quite embraced nonviolence. Mm-hmm. He didn't discard it, as he had earlier on. He used to he'd make fun of it. He said, yeah, what's the point of having... having Nonviolence against these white people that you're using violence against us. Mm-hmm. King absolutely insisted from from the start of this until his dying day that nonviolence was totally essential. And he, I heard him say once, he said, "Look, I," he said, "This was about a year before he died. If I'm the last person in this country preaching nonviolence, I will continue to preach it." He thought that was the only uh, moral and sensible and effective way to um, create change for the long run, and not and, and not um, sort of evoke more or cause more chaos. Do you think, had they not been assassinated, do you think that this would be that there would be more conversation? Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. That's definitely something I. I think a lot of people see the income inequality and are accepting it. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of focus on, we call them like dirty words in politics, certain words that have kind of tarnished meanings. And I think one of those is when you think of the word radical, like radical yeah. change, but in a lot of ways, 
because of the amount of income inequality that we have and the way that our climate is being harmed, we do need radical love and radical change, you know? And it's unfortunate that those words have... No, and and one of the things that really annoys me a lot, Elias, is Mm. that I'm... uh, In fact, I talked to Virgil (laughs) a a day before the last Martin Luther King Day, which just a couple weeks ago. Mm I said, Virgil, give me some help, because I'm going to have to sit here for a day gritting my teeth, listening to these programs on Dr. King. We call him Martin, this on Martin. And everybody's going to talk about him as this uh, civil rights leader. He never liked the word civil rights. Mm-hmm. King never did. He talked about the freedom movement uh, and, uh, and, and making him out to be kind of a very kind of um, passive nice guy who didn't really uh, address the underlying um, economic and social dislocation in American society. And I I said, that's just falsifying who he is. It's just completely, and I just don't even want to watch anymore. Mm. Um, In fact, I was invited by a local school here to to speak on Martin Luther King Day, and I said just that, and some of the people didn't like not a civil rights leader. I said, no. Dr. King never talked about civil rights. Mm. That, that, that was, uh, he wasn't just for civil rights. That's, that's so minimal. Mm-hmm. He wanted a much more profound change in American yeah. society. Yeah, which I think a lot of people see as sometimes the, the economic aspect is almost more threatening oh, yeah. than the race aspect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's oh, definitely, yes. that's a huge issue in economic curriculum. People don't want to talk about anything that's not having to do with obsessive growth and capitalism and globalized capitalism. Mm-hmm. There's no focus on on any kind of alternative to that at all. Very little. Very yeah, which is really unfortunate. I think when you talk about, so in your book, um, The Market as God, um, if actually before I guess we go into that, if you just want to talk a little bit about what that book is and kind of what inspired you to write it um, before I ask any further questions about well, it. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I... Uh, I began to notice a few years ago that um, the market, capital M, mm-hmm. uh, had begun to function in some large sectors of American and other societies as uh, the traditional God used to uh, function. The market knows best. The market uh, can be trusted. Uh, maybe it's doing something you understand now, but later on you'll understand why. It allocates resources. It, um, it, um, it does a lot of things that, uh, that, the, uh, that uh, God used to do. But uh, it doesn't, but it's, it's quite different from the, the uh, Christian or religious concept of God. For example, the market has no interest in and does not reward compassion. If anything, it rewards rivalry mm-hmm. and competition. It doesn't re- reward uh, tenderness. It doesn't reward love. It can make use of love, um, uh, all kinds of love, family love, sexual love. Just look at the advertisements and what they conjure up as ways of selling you things. They're, they're expressions of love often. Um, uh, so I decided to... Uh, so I, then, then, you know, I was working on this, and I noticed this first encyclical of Pope Francis <laughs> where he talks about a divinized market. I thought, wow, maybe the Pope and I are on the same page, at least for this. 
Uh, so uh, I had been working on it already. Mm -hmm. And so I, I finished it, and then uh, uh, I was in Rome the next year, two years later, a year and a half later, and um, met him and uh, gave him a copy. In fact, I have a picture out there I can show you of me handing me a copy, mm -hmm. handing him a copy of this book. But he already knew uh, my thinking about this, and I think it had influenced his thinking. Mm -hmm. um, it's a way of, in, in traditional uh, uh, theological language, uh, thinking of the market as having all, these, all this power is a kind of idolatry. It's investing in something that isn't God, the qualities that belong only to God. You kind of talk a little bit about um, how the market turns everything into a commodity yeah. and everything you're, you're able to turn into a commodity. And you talk a little bit about how the market makes available the convenient religious benefits without having to do the no ritualistic price. practices. Yeah. Right. What do you think is... What, why is it important to have the ritualistic practices to receive the religious benefits of acceptance, community, love, all of these things? Um, why do you think it's important to sort of have these rituals in practice rather than to just get them immediately with this short-term fix? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, nothing comes without a price. <laughs> right. And... Uh... When, when Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me, I mean, that, that cross means a certain amount of uh, pain and suffering and, uh, and um, you know, the brokenness of the elements of communion and uh, the, the people that Martin Luther King, among others, um, demonstrate that you don't get to the beloved community easily. Mm. Um, and you have to be, you don't have to be thirsting for martyrdom, but you have to be ready for a certain amount of um, sacrifice mm -hmm. and pain, uh, or um, you just you're not you're not going to make it. Uh, so I don't think it's not so much the rituals as it is the uh, the, the I mean there rituals are um, let's say the disciplines mm -hmm. of um, of getting there that are important. I think in that section I was talking about. Um, these kind of weekends where you go have a weekend with a guru and you come away uh, enlightened <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> around the swimming pool on the Caribbean island. I mean, um, sounds pretty good, but it's uh, how long is that going to last? Mm -hmm. um, I think ritual has an important place, however, because what a ritual is is a, uh, a, a concentrated dramatization of something that's important and fundamental in life. It's dramatic, it's visible, it's uh, impactful, uh, and uh, I think we all need that. We all need these experiences that sort of can get inside us uh, as uh, ritual, some rituals can. You talk a little bit in your book about um, the history between the, the church and economy and yeah, how yeah. Um, where the, there's the kind of origin story of that. So do you want to go into that a little bit and talk a little well, bit Well, yeah. That? I mean, uh, I was thinking about the uh, earliest Christians, as they are described in the book of Acts of the Apostles, who had all things in common. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or you know that section or not. Uh, they, they really did share everything, property and uh, money and everything. And that was pretty essential to them, that there not be... Uh, 
divisions, uh, haves and have-nots, or anything like that. And it, uh, as the uh, the church developed and, and got uh, more established and wealthier, that idea sort of went out. But there's so much in the uh, Old Testament prophets and in the teaching of Jesus warning against uh, excessive wealth and inequality, I mean, parable after parable and story after story showing the... Uh, Danger, the spiritual dangers of inequality. Now, there are all other kinds of dangers as well, but the uh, uh, threat to the spiritual life of this kind of uh, disparity between people who have and people who don't or don't have enough. And uh, throughout the uh, 2,000 or more years now of Christian history, there have been periods in which the church or the churches have had um, tensions with the, um, with the economy, uh, uh, various forms of economy. And um, it's, it's, I think it's healthy when there is that sort of tension, when the, when the economy can be, um, what I wouldn't see, can be uh, not quite controlled, but at least reminded of its appropriate role in the society which is to uh, help with the, uh, facilitate the distribution of goods mm -hmm. and services to people that, that, who are entitled to it. Everybody's entitled to uh, uh, food and housing and all the rest. And uh, at, its, at its best, the, um, the market or the economy can do that. At its worst, it can, it can perpetuate and deepen Mm -hmm. uh, forms of inequality, and so there have been there have been periods, the monastic period, where people uh, decided that the church was getting too. This in the early years of um, of um, Western Christianity, third, fourth, fifth centuries, when people, a lot of people, decided they just weren't. The church was getting too wealthy, and they and property owning property and. Uh, participating in the inequality, and they just kind of moved out and went and lived out in the wilderness, or in the, not, you know, not everybody. And then there was the uh, the Reformation period, where the people looked at this pretty carefully, and uh, there was a the whole um, idea of um, the social gospel in American in American Christianity, and other instances in which the, there's been a creative tension. I don't mean to say that the uh, religious institutions should run the economy, I, I'm, but I'm saying that when they uh, are in touch and, and with mutual um, respect, but also mutual willingness to criticize, and uh, mm -hmm. then both are healthier. Mm. There's a couple examples of how Pope Francis would make these comments on the economy or the climate. Um, but I think oftentimes it's not really considered, like in the actual economic realm, because they're so focused. Like the, the his his opinion isn't really taken into account right, and, right. and valued, which is really unfortunate. Because I, I wish that there was a bit more of um, right, like what you were saying, room for criticism. Yeah. 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 You discuss a little bit about in your book about the capacity to define what's real. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you could just sort of describe how the market turns like the sacred into commodities and world-shaping ethos in which there is nothing that's not for sale, sort of like talking about how, when did that like transition happen where the, how the church kind of started to fade away from, and the market sort of became its own yeah, power? Yeah. 
I think it happened uh, in around the uh, 16th, 17th centuries. Mm -hmm. It was a slow process. But uh, as the market uh, grew in its um, uh, universe around the world, as, as uh, colonialism spread, and uh, the market became more and more powerful, it could sort of edge out the kinds of values that um, uh, Christianity had um, taught and, and substitute its own the market values uh, one way or another. And, and I say there that uh, I give a couple examples, I think, of... Um, of um, well, well, take um, that, an example you used, the sacred land of, of Native Americans. From the point of view of the market, it's real estate. Mm -hmm. Sacred land, what's that? I mean, uh, there, there, there are a thousand acres of beautiful land there. Boy, how about three uh, motels and a, and a golf course? <laughs> uh, uh, it's viewed under the aspect of um, uh, money and profit. That's just the way you see everything. There are just many, many, many things that uh, uh, could be viewed as sacred. Well, for, for, many, for many people, water has a certain kind of uh, spiritual significance. Mm -hmm. and, uh, it, but it, it's also just HTO, <laughs> H2O. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, um, and I, I use the example there was sort of a reverse transubstantiation. You know, the, the uh, Roman Catholic teaching is that the bread and the wine are, are uh, become the body and bread of, of Christ. Uh, the, the the market has a reverse transubstantiation. Mm -hmm. Those things that are sacred can be transformed into something uh, something profitable, a right. commodity. Right. Commodity is the technical word for it. Nothing can escape commodification. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, that's why the omnipotence is so important. So mm -hmm. just, there is nothing beyond the reach of the commodification. Mm -hmm. It's all for sale. Um, and uh, Somebody will find a way to attach a, a price tag. Do you want? Do you want to explain a little bit in your own words what a jubilee year is? Well, I, 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 I mean, I talk about it in the book. It comes from the um, um, uh, the old pre-Christian Jewish tradition, where every seventh, see, seven times seven years, forty-nine years, there was a jubilee year. Mm -hmm. The jubilee comes from the yubel, the horn that was blown at the time, and at the jubilee year, all. Uh, uh, debts are canceled. Uh, all mortgages are are, are finished, uh, and you kind of start over again. Mm -hmm. Now they couldn't put it into complete practice, but still there was some of that going on. The important thing is it's a recognition, institutionalized and undergirded by religious law, that uh, uh, inequality of wealth tends to perpetuate itself. Mm -hmm. And unless there's some kind of intervention uh, and redistribution at some point, so you can sort of get started again, go back to go, uh, it's going to continue to uh, reinforce itself, and then and the accumulation is going to continue. How do you think, because I think a lot of people would argue that that would be, do, do you think we've gone too far to ever have a, a jubilee year ever again in terms no, of... No, I don't. don't uh, no, so. I think, and there are people now who are saying, look, some of these uh, poor third world countries are so deeply in debt that the way to <coughs> get out of this is really to kind of have, have a, a repayment holiday. Mm. And um, 
start over. If not, not start over, forgive a lot of that international debt so mm -hmm. that they can get begin to uh, to accumulate some uh, capital mm -hmm. on their own. No, I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, and um, uh, the the, um, uh, the, the the idea of the jubilee year, as I just said, is that we we need institutionalized moments in which there's a kind of a recognized and accepted partial redistribution of wealth. You know, there's a funny line, when Barack Obama was, was, uh, was president, this comes to mind, uh, um, people, uh, his, his critics tried to criticize him a lot for being in favor of redistribution. Mm -hmm. Oh, he wants to redistribute, redistribute the wealth, and uh, what, what would that do, and so on. And at the uh, uh, annual banquet where people tell jokes and so on, the press banquet, I guess, uh, Obama was talking. He looked out and said, ah, look, so much wealth to redistribute and so little time in which to do it. Mm. <laughs> he yeah. started making fun of himself. Yeah, yeah. yeah he, he was able to do that. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely, um, I think people take... Wealth. I mean, it kind of goes back to the individualistic society that we live in. But I think a lot of people take that redistribution of wealth as a personal attack. Yeah, we're going to take away mine. Right, exactly. Um, yeah, it's rather unfortunate that it's viewed that way. So at the, towards the end of the book, you have a chapter called Market and the End of the World. And you talk about how because the market is not truly a god, that it will die just as mm -hmm. mortal people do. And that you say perhaps that the solution is to remove the godlike tendencies of the market. How how do you think that looks in action of sort of transitioning the market back to something that simply exists to help people and not to? Yeah, well, I, the rest of the chapter there is devoted to some concrete steps that could be taken. In right. Uh, but uh, the uh, the um, end of the world or the as we say in, in theology, the eschatology of all this, and, and is that we, the capitalist commodity market system, depends on growth, yeah. endless growth, uh, and when when it's not growing, it's dying. Mm -hmm. But so infinite growth. But we live on a finite planet, mm -hmm. and we're beginning to find out now that we're straining the limits of the finite planet, and we're headed for. A catastrophe. We can't continue with this kind of an economic system on a finite planet. Now there are people who talk on these kind of fantasy things. Oh well, we'll um, um, start mining Mars or something. But I mean, that's all just fantasy. What needs to change is is the way in which we are ruining uh, our only the only planet we have. Uh, and um, so I think there is a built-in self-destructive element in in this. Uh, market god. Let me just say that I, I'm glad that the idea of the beloved community as associated with uh, Dr. King is um, still in circulation and may, can, can, may even become even more uh, powerful as, uh, because of this yearning for community, the kind of loneliness that people have. Uh, I think is so important in his thinking and is not often emphasized as much as it ought to be. Uh, so I commend you, for, and I, I made the podcast to get a wide audience. <laughs> I hope it works out well for you. Yeah, me too.
Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Building the Beloved. And thank you to Harvey Cox for taking the time to partake in such a timely, important discussion. On the next episode, I will be sitting down with Caitlin Mraz of the Fair Housing Justice Center in Queens, New York. I don't view it as overly idealistic, I suppose, because I do think it is really rooted in action. You know, it's up to you to make the beloved community real in any way that you can. Um, So I think that anybody can be a part of that. To learn more about Jane's Theory and the beloved community efforts, check out janestheory.com. That's J-A-N-E-S-T-H-E-O-R-Y.com. To keep up with the series, subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.